Today is the official in the Christian calendar kickoff of Advent. Now, growing up, I was a child that didn't know a whole lot about Advent. I grew up in a traditional Southern Baptist church, but we didn't celebrate Advent. I know in this church we've done it some, and years past you have and you haven't. But Advent is a general understanding of the expectation of something that is coming. And I began to think about all that will take place in the month that is ahead as we rush towards this date on the calendar we have set aside to celebrate the birth of Christ. And as I began to think about all of that, I thought in my mind how much of what we have put into our celebration of Christmas that distracts or takes away from the very reason we are celebrating. And I began to think of it more in depth than just the reason for the season bumper stickers or it's about the child in the manger kind of thing because I would agree that we all would agree that that's the case. But I began to think, do we really celebrate that way? I mean, what is this season all about? I've been reading through some, some uh, information for our Sunday night study, our Sunday night discipleship class out of C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. And he has an interesting chapter in that book where he talks about this coming of the Savior. And he puts it in some different terms. It's an interesting thought process that he has. But he talks about in here that Christianity is the only one that really thinks about a dark power that is engaged in a civil war with its creator. That God created Satan. Satan as the dark power is now rebelling against God and you and I are living in enemy territory fighting a fight of sabotage against the rebellion. And he says in there this interesting thought. He says this world in its enemy-occupied territory and he says that Christmas is the story of how the rightful king has landed, landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And he says in there, and he calls that chapter simply the invasion. And as I thought about that, I thought about all of the images that I will put up in my house, you will put up in your house, that will be on lawns in various forms across this city. And I couldn't help but think that we're talking about an invasion in the form of a baby. That's why I chose the graphic up there. Now, I know some of you in this room are toes people, and some of you in this room are not toes people, all right? But I have had two children. And I have one on the way, and I can tell you without a doubt, some of the sweetest things on earth are the toes of a baby. Amen? Some of you out there had them. I mean, just little baby toes are just sweet. They're plump. I don't care how big the baby is. They're plump. They're fat. They're just, you just want to grab them and wiggle them, all right? And so I thought about this idea that Christ came with plump, plump little baby toes, all right? And yet at the same time, it was the greatest invasion in the history of the world. In comparison, even something like D-Day, Normandy, looks small. Because the God of the universe decided in order to take back the kingdom He created and the people 
he wants a relationship with, he decided to invade in the form of a baby with cute little toes. And so over the next month, what we're really going to do is ask the question, what does that mean for us? Who is this person of Jesus and why does it matter? Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. What I hope to stir up in these days is this sense of longing, desire. Because the truth is, Scripture teaches us that Advent, we look towards the first coming of Christ in the form of a baby. But the Scripture also teaches that we live our lives in constant Advent, constant longing, constant looking for the return of Jesus that the King to which we sing will one day come back and He will rescue us from our current situation and remove us from the enemy's territory and once and for all slay the enemy for us and His glory. So what I hope to build in these days is to train us again to ache for the better things. Of all the seasons of the year, Advent is the time to acknowledge, feel, and embrace this joyful anguish of longing for our Messiah. We put greenery all over the place. We place it all around. We drive the streets with lights illuminating the darkness. And it's all a testament to the fact that one day the Messiah came to town when He had been longed for for years and years and years. My prayer is that we would become a people that long for our Messiah to return as much as the Israelites longed for Him to come the first time. And we start today with an understanding of who this Jesus is we're talking about, the hope of glory. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that of course sounds like what? Genesis, right? We've talked about this. We did this not too long ago, but we're going to look at a little different aspect of it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What I really want to do over the next four weeks is kind of expand on something we did in one week, a few weeks, a few weeks ago, when we did the story sermon series. And on that sermon series, we talked about that Prince Charming arrives and the spell is broken. And I want to break that out over four weeks and using the book of John, chapter 1 specifically, to look through some of those things. And what we get at the very first of this is some statements about who Jesus is. Now, the first thing we see is that Jesus is not referred to as Jesus here, is He? He's referred to as the Word. Now, I'll just be honest with you. Word is not the best word to translate the word that the original uses. But word is as close as we can get to the word that the original uses, so we translate it as word. All right? Now, some of you that have been in church have heard discussion about logos and that that's the word that's behind it, and it's a Greek word, and it's a Greek philosophical term and all of that, which is true. But I think John has in mind here something else entirely. It's not a philosophical mindset. It's not the grand concept of all grand concepts. What John is thinking of here is the Old Testament understanding of the Word of God, which means God's character in action. And so the Word here is not so much an idea as it is God's character in action. 
And so it says God's character in action, which for us and for the people of this day would have been Jesus without a doubt. He was God's character in action. It says, first of all, that Jesus is eternally God. In the beginning was the Word. It tells us that from before time began, the Word existed. That before you and I drew our first breaths, that Jesus was here, and we know that. But what it also tells us is there was not a time when Jesus was not. And there will not be a time when Jesus is not. Jesus always has been, Jesus is, and Jesus always will be. Now, we talk about in our minds that we can have eternal life, right? That in the church we talk about that if you believe in Jesus, then you can have life eternal. That does not mean that you will have always been eternal. It means you are eternal from now on. And there's a difference. You see, when I was born in 1976, I'd spent nine months in my mother's womb. I actually spent a couple of extra weeks. And in those time leading up to that, I was conceived at some moment, and I came to be. Before 1975, there was no me. Now, there are other religions that will try to tell you that, that you came from somewhere and you've climbed up from a bug to a horse to a dog to you. But I know that Scripture teaches before 1975 there was no me. Now, I, you can put your own birth year and the months that preceded that in there and just say that before that there was no me. I'm not going to ask you what year it is. Some of you don't want to tell that's okay. In your mind you can do that, all right? But Scripture teaches that when Jesus was born in the year 4 B.C., that's right, Jesus was born four years before Christ. That doesn't make sense, but they made a mistake in calculating it, all right? Somewhere around 4 B.C., Jesus was born, that when He was born, when He was conceived by the Holy Spirit with the Virgin Mary, that He did not start to be then. He had always been. He just took a different form then. All right? You got it? He's always been. But here's the thing. It doesn't just say that He's always been, because it's one thing to always be, but it's just that He's always been God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, understanding there means that He was there with God, and the actual translation literally means that He was one-on-one, face-to-face, right with, in a relationship that cannot be described anywhere else, that He was with God. God. The word with God does not mean that he was some other kind of being that was around sitting at table with God. It means that he was equal with, right alongside of, essentially God. We'll get to that in a minute. But the point here is that Jesus is eternally God. Now let me ask you a question. Does Jesus ever say the words, I am God? Does Jesus ever say the words, I am God? am God. All right, you're looking at me. means I have no idea, Pastor. Yes or no, what do you think? How many of you think he does? Raise your hand. How many of you think he doesn't? Raise your hand. All right, we've got a smart group here. He doesn't. And there are people that will try to say, well, that's just what people said about him. And Jesus never acknowledged that he thought he was God. Because you see, to say that he is God and for Jesus to believe that makes him out of a character that people can kind of create into somebody that they have to deal with. And so the question is, did Jesus ever say he was God? Well, he didn't say those words, but he did. If you've got your Bibles in John, I want you to see that part of John's whole argument in the book of John 
where John was writing to a group of people that were trying to say that Jesus never appeared in the flesh, and if he appeared in the flesh, he couldn't be God, that John tries to prove that Jesus is God. Turn over to John chapter 5. All right? And look down at verse 16. This is after he's done some healing at the pool. He's healed this, and he tells this guy to get up and walk, and Jesus found him, and they were doing all this stuff. And in verse 16, it says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath... You couldn't heal on the Sabbath. I don't know if you knew that or not. But back then, they couldn't heal on the Sabbath. The Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day. I think this is interesting because remember what I said the, uh, the word word meant there? It was the action or expression of God's character, the action part of that. What he's basically saying is God's word has always been alive and active. It's been going. And I, too, am working. Verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father. You see that in verse 18? Making himself equal with God. See, we don't see him saying, I am God here, but when he says, my Abba, my Father, he is equating himself with his Father and saying that he is God. Turn over to John chapter 8. We're just going to do a couple of these. There are many more, but we're just going to do a couple. And you look down at verse 52, or actually verse 48. Look at what the Jews say about Jesus. You know, sometimes we think we're the first culture that's ever had people say false things about people in public. They try to get him pretty good here. Verse 48 says, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And demon-possessed. Now, the two worst things you could be in the Jewish culture was a Samaritan and demon-possessed. So they say, well, at least he'll, be, he'll, he'll have to admit to one of these. Aren't we right? Now, there is no proof at all that he's a Samaritan. And there's no proof at all that he's a demon-possessed person, but they say it. Jesus says, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, there was only person that could promise no death. Verse 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that to keep your words, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than Abraham? He died. So did the prophets. Who do you think you are? You ever heard that before? That's kind of a sassy question, isn't it? That's not like a normal question. I don't think that's kind of a I don't think that's a question from the religious leaders that is really investigating. Just just who do you who are you? I don't think that's the way it was like. Who do you think you are? Jesus says in verse fifty four, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I do. Who's he talking to here? He's talking to the religious leaders of the day, the priests of the priests, the scribes of the scribes, the Pharisees of the Pharisees. If I said I did not, I would be a liar, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing me or my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said, you haven't seen Abraham. You're not even 50. That's not a commentary on if you're 50 or not. That's just what he says, all right? Verse 58, this is by far the most 
obvious declaration of Jesus declaring himself as God. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I, what's the word? Am. Not I was, but I am. Remember when Moses is getting the people or getting the commands from God, and he says, God, I, I can go talk for you, but I don't know who tell people who, I, who, who sent me. And he says, just tell them I am that I am sent you. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Last one, John chapter 20. Right at the end of the book, Jesus appears to Thomas. Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples. So the other Simmons said, we've seen the Lord. He says, unless I see the nail parts in his hands and put my finger where the nails are, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. Then Thomas, he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. The implication there is that Thomas does exactly that. And then what does Thomas say in verse 28? Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Back to John 1. The point of this passage is simply this. That Jesus is God. From eternity past to eternity present to eternity future which you realize that even using the phrase past, present, and future with eternity is irrelevant because it's outside of time. The second thing we see in this passage is not only is He eternally God, but He is essentially God. What do I mean by that? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But then it says, not only is He with God, but that the Word was God. And the inference there is simply this. What that means is that He is a perfect reflection of God. Have you ever seen children that are exact replicas of their parents? Like, look like them, talk like them, act like them. Now, I'm, I'm, there may be a few differences, but you know what I mean. They're, they're like their parents. Have you ever seen that? Okay. Sometimes when they do that, they'll say things like, boy, he is your spitting image, right? Now, I, I don't know the origin of that phrase, and I'm afraid to know the origin of that phrase. Anytime we're around the family or we're around friends that we hadn't seen in a while, I am told that I have a spitting image in one of my sons. One that looks like me, walks like me, acts like me. Of course, it's the well-behaved one. That's... Right? And when either one of them are well behaved, that's like me, right? But the point is that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. Okay? What this means is, and you realize that I'm making a stretch here, and theologically, that, that, that what I'm saying is that Jesus is the spitting image of God. He is God. There are sometimes debates about what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Have you ever read some of the Old Testament and then immediately turned over some of the teachings of Jesus and found that they seem a little different? I mean, in the Old Testament, you've got God saying, if you don't follow my rules, I'm going to kill you, take you away, throw you out. 
just reading in, in, in even Daniel, a book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar, he says, I've used you, Nebuchadnezzar, but you got too proud, so now you're going to have to go out there, out in the desert, you're going to have to eat grass, you're not even going to be like a human anymore. That's what you get for disobeying me. And then you get to Jesus, and you get to Jesus, and Jesus says that we're to love our neighbors, we're to be merciful, we're to be kind, we're all of these things. And sometimes there have been arguments, well, the Old Testament God is not the New Testament Jesus. The truth is, the Old Testament God is exactly the New Testament Jesus. They are the same. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that we don't have the mind like Christ who, even though he was in the very nature God. The idea literally is that he was very God of very God. That he was as God as you could be. And so what we see in Jesus is who God is. And so we see in Jesus all of these things. And in case we didn't get that, he tells us some things like the fact that, that Jesus, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made. In him was a life. That's not just any life. That is the life, the abundant life, everything about life. That in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so we have in this passage an understanding that Jesus is eternally God and Jesus is essentially God. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means this. You've got two choices. This morning, you have a choice of whether to believe that and act on it or to reject it. Now, let me just say, and this is where you get in a little bit of a difficult area, that I believe that there are even believers, people that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who are not walking and living their life as if they believe Jesus is eternally and essentially God who is going to take care of them no matter what circumstance may come. And one of the things about Jesus being eternally and essentially God is that we can place our faith in Him no matter what may come. You know, the holidays are a great time of year. The celebrating Thanksgiving and Christmas all kind of in this last part of the year. It's a great conclusion to the year. It's a wonderful kind of time. But the truth is it can be very, very difficult as well. And people that have uh, family issues or have lost loved ones or have had difficulties in their lives or are facing difficulty, perhaps, you know, when the things came up there about spend less, you're like, absolutely, this, this year I can't even do what I've done in the past. And you're worried about how you're going to, Tell your kids that they don't have as much Christmas this year because mommy and daddy just don't have as much money this year. And things are just not like they used to be. And explaining all of those kind of scenarios. And this is the first Christmas you're spending without somebody that you care deeply about. Or this is the first Christmas that there's been a rift in the family that had never existed before. This is the first Christmas when the the children are are, are moving away or, or things are happening in their lives and they're at college now or they're out of college now and they're not coming back like they once did. This is the first Christmas when those kind of things are happening and it becomes difficult to enjoy the season. Now, one of the things that I'm convinced in American Christianity is oftentimes we've made Christmas about Christmas. And listen, I love Christmas traditions and I love my families. I love the ideas that we did, the family around the table, the food that we ate, the presents we got. I'm not saying that none of that is that that's evil. What I am saying is I sometimes think that if I went through the motions of the things I do at Christmas, that Christmas would be no different than if I really focused on the one 
who it's about. C.S. Lewis is famous for saying that if Jesus claimed to be God and the Bible takes that claim and furthers it, then you have three choices about who Jesus is. That he's either a liar, that he just lied to everybody, and it's kind of hard for those people out there that say that he was a great teacher to say he was a great liar as well. That he was a lunatic, that he believed he was the Son of God, God himself, but he was just crazy. Or you have to believe what he says. And one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture comes in verse 5 of chapter 1 of John here. When it says, The light shines in the darkness. Now who's the light? Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. I couldn't help but think, as I was reading that passage and I was thinking about Christmas and I was thinking about Advent and about looking forward to the Messiah returning, I couldn't help but think how many of my friends and family and neighbors do not even know the light of Christmas. They don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I began to think in my own mind, what would it mean for me to truly worship fully this year to spend less, to give more, and to love all like Jesus. Last week, um, and I, I don't know if I did in both services, but in one of the services I know at least, I talked about the fact that we had received an award for Lottie Moon giving. Those of you that Lottie Moon's the, the offering we take at the end of the year, Christmas time, and it goes to international missions. 100% of what you take up for Lottie Moon goes to the international mission field for missionaries. And over the last two or three months, I've been reading a lot about the international mission field and how it's ripe for harvest and the, the strategy that the Southern Baptists are using are really effective in reaching some people. And then I'll read about this last couple of weeks that there are a few hundred people ready to go to the mission field, but yet there's no funding allowed for it. Because the Lottie Moon Christmas offering has not met what we require to send missionaries for the last few years. And I, I think, you know, in the video they talked about the uh, the well project. I think that's a great project. If you'd like more information about the well project, you can go to adventconspiracy.org. You can t- call me or email me at pastor at fbcgillisville.com, and I'll be glad to get you some information about that. But I just wonder what would happen if Christians across this land in Southern Baptist churches like ours, would say that we are committed this year to spend less and to give more to that offering. To see people who do not know the light in the darkness come to know the light. And what would your Christmas look like if over the next month you focused on one friend, one family member, one person that you know, that does not recognize the light and the darkness, and you prayed about and found a way to describe Jesus to them. You know, there's no better time of year to talk about it because the name of Jesus is everywhere. We were coming home last night from Jackson, and uh, as we were on our way home, uh, we turned it, we, as soon as we could get the signal, we turned it to 92.9, the station that's playing the Christmas music here. And as the songs were playing, I... 
I couldn't help but notice how many of the songs on that station at this time of year are songs that would never be played on that station at any other time of year. And then in about a 30-minute period of time, the name of Jesus was mentioned 15 or 20 times. One of my favorite songs, carols, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love that verse in there that talks about the reason Jesus was born. And there's just that phrase in there, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. And I couldn't help but think how many people will be going around singing those words and not understanding them in the least. And how that my longing, my desire this Advent ought to be to see people who are in darkness understand Jesus as eternally and essentially God. I thought about in my own life and difficulties that are there, problems that are arising, problems that have been there. In the lives of people in this congregation, problems that are there, problems that are coming, and how different it would be if I lived as if Jesus was eternally and essentially God. Put it in His hands and trusted Him. And I just wonder as we begin this Advent time, what does that mean for your life? What does it mean for you to worship fully, to spend less, to give more, and to love all?